Good morning, everyone. I'm John Schmidt. I'm the senior pastor here at Centerpoint Fellowship. And how about that extra hour of sleep, huh? That's amazing. Hey, uh, we are glad you're with us here today, all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. And today we are going to jump into our next installment on living as a believer in an unbelieving world. And it has to do with marriage. If there's any place that the world would love to see a difference in our lives and the lives that they are living, it would probably be in our marriages. Uh, the city of Corinth, uh, the ancient city of Corinth, was a place where uh, it was a seaport known for commerce and for trade. There were lots of sailors that came there. It's also a place that was, uh, and so it was known for some wild and uh, raucous times, but it was also uh, known as a place that had lots of temples to Greek deities. Uh, one of those was Aphrodite, and she was the goddess of love and of pleasure. And so uh, the temple there, it's known from archaeological finds that at least a thousand prostitutes were employed, male and female prostitutes, for the pleasure of the people of the city. And it's known as a place of great immorality and wickedness. It was there that God had called the Apostle Paul to start a church. He did. People came out of all sorts of sinful lifestyles in order to become believers. <clears throat> and after he'd started that church and got some leadership raised up, he moved on to other places and started churches elsewhere. A few years later, some people came to him. They wrote him letters, and they came and visited with him and said, hey, we've got some problems in our church. And some of the problems had to deal with marriage. There were lots of temptations, obviously, with brothels on every corner, in Corinth, and so there were lots of temptations for people to stray. There were also lots of struggles going on inside the marriage. Because they lived in such an immoral place, there were people questioning whether or not marriage was even valid. If you'd become a Christian and you were married to a non-Christian, should you just divorce them and leave them? Then there were other people saying, well, it's so wicked and immoral here, maybe we should just abstain from intimate relationships altogether, even if we are married. And so there were all kinds of questions and all kinds of problems. And so Paul wrote them some answers. And today we're going to talk about this, but it all fits under the heading of living as a believer in an unbelieving world. How on earth are people supposed to believe that we love God if we don't love each other? And particularly if I don't love a person whom I pledged to love the rest of my life. How are people supposed to believe in God's forgiveness when I won't forgive my spouse? How are, supposed to, are people supposed to believe that God forgives and forgets but I won't forget a darn thing that my spouse did against me? And so the problems that Paul was addressing in Corinth, you'll see there are a lot of applications for us today because we're still, still supposed to live as believers in an unbelieving world. I want to talk to you about that today. And uh, so I'd like to have a word of prayer. Jump right in. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to be here today. I thank you that we have a chance to look at your word. And Father, uh, if we're going to be believers in an unbelieving world, well, Lord, our marriages need to show uh, what we believe about love, forgiveness, kindness. And so, Lord, I just pray that today that you'll speak, you'll move me out of the way and teach us what you want us to know about marriage and how Christians are supposed to honor each other within marriage. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. It's an outline inside your bulletin. It has a lot of fill-in-the-blank items on believers on a marriage. If you need a pen, just raise your hand. One of our ushers will be glad to bring a pen to you. So, five things out of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that I want to mention uh, about believers living as unbelievers living among unbelievers, not living as unbelievers, living among unbelievers when it comes to marriage. First of all, this is all from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, believers put the needs of their spouses, the spouses ahead of their own. So if I'm a believer, I put the needs of my spouse ahead of myself. I'd mentioned to you that there were people that weren't, they were confused about how to live out their life in marriage. If you 
put this in context, last week we talked about immorality, sexual immorality, and, it, and we had some, Paul had some strong thoughts about that, and he was warning people not to be involved with others before they were married. Now he's writing in 1 Corinthians 7, reminding them that after you are married, you need to protect this party relationship still. I mean, isn't that just like the devil? The time when he wants people to get involved intimately is before marriage. The time he wants people to stop being involved intimately is after marriage. He doesn't care which ditch he gets you in. He just doesn't want you straight on the road. And that's the way he works. He's always a deceiver. And whatever stage of life we're in, he wants to trick us. And you will see this uh, in Paul's writings. Now for the matters which you wrote about, it's good for a man not to marry, but since there's so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And some people are even saying, well, if Jesus is coming back soon, then probably we shouldn't marry. And he goes, well, yeah, but that's not possible for everybody. You'll see as the argument or as his thinking unfolds here. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time so you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan, if you'd circle the word Satan there, will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. And there you go. If the devil can tempt us to sexual immorality, that's what he'll do. If he'll tempt us to abstaining in the, name of, in the name of our faith and other things with a false conviction about this so that now there's strife within our marriage, he'll do it. Because if he can destroy marriage, my goodness, he can destroy the biggest platform we have that gives credibility to our witness. If he can destroy a marriage, you can get at the kids. If you can destroy a marriage, you can give people pain and heartache the rest of their lives. And that's what the devil comes to do, steal and kill and destroy. And boy, if he can start with marriages, he's hit the jackpot, the mother load. And so Paul was saying, hey, look, you know, some of you are saying you don't even need to get married. Well, not everybody can handle that. Some of you are saying that, well, you need to abstain from intimate relationships even within marriage. Well, that's not going to work. I mean, I was discussing this with some of our pastoral staff the other day about not, you know, he says here, don't deprive each other. And, you know, your, your wife belongs, your husband, the husband's body belongs to his wife and our pastoral staff, they all said, we've never sinned in this area. Uh, we're, we're willing to go wherever she wants. Okay, like this. And, so, um, and you can imagine a group of men saying something like that. Anyway, um, uh, but the whole idea here is this, that Paul says it comes under the heading of believers put the needs of their spouse ahead of their own. The life application for you and me, I hope it's obvious, in marriage, Christ calls both husband and wives to submit. Husbands and wives need to submit. Paul wrote his letter to the Corinthians from Ephesus, few years after that, he wrote back to the church in Ephesus because they had the same problems. Marriage, as I said before, is a laboratory for us to work out our faith. I mean, if you want to learn about how selfish you are, just get married. You want to learn patience, have kids. Okay, I mean, that's the way it works. But if you want to learn about how selfish you are, you learn it real fast if you get married because you'll find out. That's why in Ephesians 5, <clears throat> Paul says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her. A few years back, I was meeting with a couple. They were middle-aged, and both of them had been widowed. And now they were going to get married. They wanted some premarital counseling and other things. And they wanted to do this right, and they wanted to submit their relationship to the Lord. And we studied through this passage. And the woman said, well, I don't know if I like submitting to his leadership. And he said, well, I don't know if I like dying for you. I mean, I hope you understand that if you're going to do 
marriage, the way the Bible talks, it's not 50-50, it's 100 and 100. I'm all in, she's all in, we're all in. Whatever it takes. And so I have to submit to God and to his leadership and his desire for selfless love in my life, and I have to submit to whatever my spouse needs. And when Paul wrote this, this was just as hard to hear in that day as it is in our day. Because sometimes people tell you that. They go, well, yeah, well, that was back in Bible times when it was easy for wives to submit to their husbands. Yeah, what are you smoking? Okay, that's never been easy. And it's easy for husbands to, lie, to die, uh, to lay down their lives for their wife. It's like, never. This has always been difficult. And so back in those days, as now, this is something we need to demonstrate in the way we treat our spouses. And so if I'm going to live as a believer in an unbelieving world, I need to make sure I put the needs of my spouse ahead of my own. Secondly, the second thing I'd share out of five here is that believers view both marriage and singleness as gifts from God. Marriage and singleness as gifts from God. Here's what Paul wrote. He said, sometimes I wish everyone were single like me, a simpler life in many ways. At our 8 o'clock service, I had a lot of amens when I read that phrase. Let me read that again. Sometimes I wish everyone were single like me, a simpler life in many ways. Amen. There we go. Okay. Um, it is simpler in many ways when you're, mar- when you're single. When you get married, it gets complicated. But he goes on to say, but celibacy is not for everyone any more than marriage is. God gives the gift of the single life to some, the gift of married life to others. I do, though, tell the unmarried and the widows that singleness might well be the best thing for them as it has been for me. Paul was single, and he said, you know, I can, I can serve God undivided, with undivided attention. He goes on later in that, same paragraph, in that same chapter of 1 Corinthians 7, and this is the life application for you and me. Believers living in an unbelieving world decide to marry or stay single based on what helps them best serve God. And this is Paul's point. Hey, whether you marry or you stay single, you need to evaluate, will this help me serve God better if I stay at this station in life. The time that remains is very short, he wrote. So from now on, those with wives should not focus only on their marriage, for this world as we know it will soon pass away. I want you to be free from the concerns of this life. An unmarried man can spend his time doing the Lord's work and thinking how to please him, but a married man has to think about his earthly responsibilities and how to please his wife. His interests are divided. In the same way, a woman is no longer married who is no longer married or has never been married can be devoted to the Lord and holy in body and spirit, but a married woman has to think about her earthly responsibilities and how to please her husband. I'm saying this for your benefit, not to place restrictions on you. I want you to do whatever will help you serve the Lord best with as few distractions as possible. Can you imagine if that's the way we made decisions about marriage? And there are people who make decisions about marriage for a whole lot of reasons. Well, he's cute. She's pretty. I'll marry him. I'll marry her. I'm marrying him for the money. I'm marrying her. Well, you know, I'm almost 40. I'm going to get married. Might as well marry her. She's the only one I haven't run off. Or people could say, you know, biological clock's ticking. If I want to ever have kids, might as well marry here. It might be the last train out of the station. Not much of a train, but it's the last train. You wouldn't believe the conversations I've had. I've talked to people. Those things really do happen. That's why they get married. Or they get married on the rebound. Someone died or they got divorced. and Six weeks to six months later, they're already remarried to someone. They haven't thought about it. They haven't prayed about it. They just did something on the spur of the moment. 
And Paul would say, hey, look, we need to be very careful here. Singleness and marriage are both gifts from God. Sometimes I meet people and they're single and they say, I feel so much pressure from my family, even from other Christians. I'm 35 and I'm not married. And they go, well, is there something wrong? I mean, are you sick? And I'll pray for you. And it's like they don't. And I've had people come up and tell me, it's like, well, I don't understand why they're so worried about this. I really feel like God gives me this. God calls some people to be single. And the best advice I've heard for anyone who's single is to say, hey, if God's called you to this, you'll know if you seek him with all your heart. If you're seeking him with all your heart and there's a woman that is seeking with, uh, if a guy is doing this and a woman is seeking God with all of her heart, then God will bring you together at the right time. He did this with me and my wife. And one of the things we had to pray about when we were engaged, we had some long discussions about all this, is that was the only thing in my life that I ever really uh, had to ponder about. And, and, you know, it was people have asked me, did you ever have to think about this, whether you'd be married or not, or whether you could handle being single? And I said, yeah, I contemplated it for 20, 30 seconds, okay, about whether or not I could handle singleness. I could not. Uh, but at the same time, I was convinced once I met my wife that God brought her to me. And together, we'd be a better team. We'd be better together than we ever would be as singles. I need her. She's my counselor. Over these last 28 years of marriage, she has prayed with me. She has challenged me. When we first started dating, I mean, that was one of the things that stood out. She was already involved in ministry of her own. We would sit down and talk about passages of the Bible, and she would passionately disagree with me, and I could prove how wrong she was. No, I mean, it would be... <laughs> It wasn't always that way. Um, she uh, comes alongside me. She's my helper. She is my lover. She is the mother of my children. And I thank God for her. I don't know where I'd be without her. But what if we evaluated and said, hey, why would I marry? Well, this would help me serve the Lord better. There are some people who need to marry and some who don't. And Paul says, let that be your chief concern, not something you tag on at the end. Well, I'm marrying them for all these other reasons. You getting married at a church? Oh, yeah, I guess so. They got a pretty steeple. Yeah, let's get married there. Be good for pictures. And that's the only thought about getting married in a church. And it's not supposed to be an afterthought. It's supposed to be the predominant thought. Because, again, if I'm going to live as a believer in an unbelieving world... They want to see once, hey, does anybody really mean this stuff? And will you live it out in your house before you try to tell me to live it out in mine? Because the world hates hypocrisy. Everybody does. We do. So believers put the needs of their spouse ahead of their own. Secondly, believers view marriage and singleness as gifts from God. And thirdly, believers honor their marriage vows. A vow is a lifelong promise. The people in Corinth obviously didn't honor their vows. There was so much immorality. If you had a problem with your spouse, just go down to the temple of Aphrodite. You can get your needs met. No big deal. And Paul's saying, hey, wait a minute now. There's a temple of Aphrodite with prostitutes, but in chapter 6, we talked about this. He said, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God lives in you. And so people are going to see how you live. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. People are watching you. Don't forget that. And you don't take the Holy Spirit and commit immoral acts with your body because you're dragging the Lord's name through the mud. 
But to those who are married, I have a command that comes not from me, but from the Lord. A wife must not leave her husband, but if she does leave him, then let her remain single or else be reconciled to him. And the husband must not leave his wife. It's important to note here that from the beginning, God, that's the fill in the blank item there, God designed marriage to be a lifelong commitment. Not Paul, not me, not you. God did. If you flip your outline over, you'll see where I get this. This is from Mark chapter 10. Jesus was once confronted by some experts in the Bible. They knew the Bible backwards and forwards, and they used it to justify positions that were clearly out of context and missing the whole point. One of them came, one of those issues was the issue of divorce. Some Pharisees who were experts in the Bible came to Jesus one day and tried to trap him with a question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife? And Jesus answered them with a question of his own. Well, what did Moses say in the law about divorce? In other words, what did Moses say in the Old Testament about it? Well, he permitted it, they replied. He said a man can give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away. In case you're wondering, you could write in the margin, Deuteronomy 24, first four verses. That's where Moses spoke about this. Jesus knew exactly what they were speaking about. And in Deuteronomy 24, you can read it later, Moses was rebuking people because of their wicked intent when it came to divorce. He said if a man divorces his wife, he needs to do it in writing, not just dismiss her and then later on say, well, I didn't really mean that. No, do it in writing, make it official. If you send her away and then she marries somebody else because a woman couldn't own property in those days, she had to be attached to someone if someone was going to take care of her, then she marries somebody else and then he sends her away and divorces her, she can't go back to the first husband. And it's in writing. And the whole spirit of it was you're not supposed to treat women like cattle. And you trade them. And so now if you understand that, then you understand Jesus' answer. Well, what does Moses say? Well, he permitted it, they replied. He said a man can give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away. But Jesus responded, he wrote this commandment only as a concession to your hard hearts. But God made them male and female from the beginning of creation. This explains why a man leaves his father and his mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Since they're no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. And if you go to any wedding ceremony at a church, you will hear this phrase, what God has joined together, let no one put asunder. That's where it comes from. And so Paul is saying, look, you guys are living in Corinth. Marriage is cheap. Vows mean nothing. Sailors come to commit lewd acts on vacation. There are threats to marriage everywhere. Satan is in the middle of all this. If you're going to stand out, you need to honor your vows. The life application for you and me is, if I'm going to honor my vows and you are, then you and I must keep choosing to love our spouses for a lifetime. We have to keep choosing love whether I feel like it or not. This is not an emotional decision. I mean, you hear me say this all the time, but it's true. Our culture defines love as a feeling. Love is a choice that you have to keep choosing if you're going to be faithful to vows. Paul wrote about this in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. Now, I want to point something out here. Because love isn't a feeling... A vow needs to be made about something you can actually do, not a feeling. C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity, he said, if you make vows based on emotion, 
That'd be like making a vow that I will never have a headache or I'll never, or I'll always stay hungry. I mean, you can't vow about your feelings. Your feelings come and go. You vow about things you can do. And those have to be specific actions that show you love someone. So let's start again. Love is patient. Love is kind. I can choose that. So can you. If you and I are going to be married long term, you're going to have to choose it more than once. Ask anybody who's been married for more than six days and they'll tell you you've got to keep choosing. Okay? This isn't a one-time thing. Well, I'll choose to love you. I'll choose to be patient. Well, wait till Thursday. Okay, you're going to have to choose again. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. You've got to choose to not be rude. Love doesn't demand its own way. It's not irritable, and it keeps no record of being wronged. You and I have to choose to let go of the record of being wronged because some of us love to use that, and some of us have a photographic memory when it comes to being wronged. We can remember what happened 17 years ago at 9.57 a.m., exactly what was said. I'll write it out for you. I've had it notarized. (laughs) And every time we're about to lose an argument, pull that bad boy out of the back pocket. Now I win. And Paul's reminding the Corinthians, just like he reminded us today, so this is what you want the unbelievers to see? You know how to win an argument? You know how to prove you're right? You want me to come to church? No thanks. I've seen enough self-righteous, proud, unforgiving people in my life. I don't need to put religion around it too. Just saying. Love never gives up. Love never loses faith. You've got to choose that. It's always hopeful, endures through every circumstance. It's a choice. Those are specific actions, not feelings. Ben Franklin was the one who said, keep your eyes wide open before marriage and half shut afterwards. That's a choice. I went in with eyes open, knowing what I was getting into. I'm going to let stuff go after. I'll forgive you. So if you and I are going to live as believers in an unbelieving world, then we're going to have to make sure we honor our vows. Fourthly, Married people who become believers help their unbelieving family members become believers too. There were people in Corinth who became Christians. They'd been married. I mean, obviously, there would be people who become a believer after they were already married. They probably had kids. They might have been married six months. might have been married 16 years. Now they're believers. Now what should I do with my unbelieving spouse? And there were some people in church saying, well, you need to divorce them. You need to get Christians need to be with Christians. And Paul is writing them back and goes, well, no, wait a minute, guys. Let's think about this. If a Christian man has a wife who is not a believer and she's willing to continue living with him, he must not leave her. And if a Christian woman has a husband who's a believer and is willing to continue living with her, she must not leave him. For the Christian wife brings holiness to her marriage and the Christian husband brings holiness to his marriage. Otherwise, your children would not be holy. But now they are holy. But if the husband or wife who isn't a believer insists on leaving, we'll let him go. In such cases, the Christian husband or wife is no longer bound to the other, for God has called you to live a life in peace. Don't you wives realize your husbands might be saved because of you? And don't you husbands realize your wives might be saved because of you? I mean, Peter said pretty much the same thing in 1 Peter 3. He was writing to wives who were married to unbelieving husbands. Wives, in some ways, in the same way, excuse me, be submissive to your husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. Once again, marriage is a laboratory. Hey, this is true. Because you used to be rude and obnoxious to me, and now you're kind. What gives? Jesus has changed me. Now, I don't believe any of that stuff. 
Well, I used not to believe in that stuff until I saw how much my husband changed. I never knew that there was reality to the faith until I saw the change it made in my wife. And now you're getting the heart of what Peter said and what Paul said. What about you and me? And Paul was writing the Corinthians saying, hey, becoming for you a top priority now. If they're willing to stay with you. Now, if they leave you and they say, hey, look, it's me or Jesus. I'm tired of this Christian junk. It's me or Jesus. You don't give up Jesus, I'm leaving. And Paul says, well, then you got to let them go. But if they're willing to stay, who knows? You might be the one to bring them to the Lord and your kids. Remember, again, if Satan can destroy marriage, he can ruin your happiness. He can ruin your spouse's happiness. He can ruin the future for your kids. He can do untold amounts of damage. And so this is where he's putting his biggest punch. He's doing a great job in our culture right now. And so Paul's warning the Corinthians, hey, look, we're trying to be believers here. Take your vows seriously. If you have the opportunity and the unbeliever won't leave, won't leave you, is willing to stay with you, who knows? You might be the one to bring them to the Lord. So here's a life application for you and me. If possible, we should embrace our current living situation as our mission field, whether we're single or married. Each of you, this is 1 Corinthians 7, I took verses 17 and 27 and put them together here, similar thought. Each of you should continue to live in whatever situation the Lord has placed you and remain as you were when God first called you. This is my rule for all the churches. If you have a a wife, don't seek to end the marriage. If you don't have a wife, don't seek to get married. Just seek God. Date God. If If two single people are dating God again and they're going closer to God and God wants them together, he'll bring them together. God wants what's best for me more than I do. If you're married to an unbeliever and they're willing to stay with you, Pray for them every day. See if they could be won over. Ask God to help you have the strength and the love to win them over. But look at the situation where you are as a ministry field. An opportunity. I mean, if you were going to go do missions, we talk about missions all over the world, if you're going to go be a missionary, you're going to have to sacrifice in order to go to another part of the world. And you're going to have to submit to cultural rules and things that don't come natural to you. Probably eat foods you don't like. Learn a language you didn't speak. And we'd say, well, yeah, that's part of being a missionary. Well, how could I be a missionary in my own home? Maybe I got to do things that I don't want to do. Eat foods I don't like. <sighs> Learn a love language that I don't speak. It could all happen. And so Paul's rule is, hey, stay in the situation where you are. Sometimes people come to me and they've, they go, well, you know, John, I've become a Christian now, but... I didn't know all this. I was married to a woman before, divorced her, and now I'm married again. Should I divorce my current wife and go back to the first wife? Well, no, I'd be under the same thing here. Live in the position where God has placed you now. Be faithful in these vows. I hope this makes sense to everyone. And it's terribly important we do this. And we don't write this off, well, God can't use me, not here. Uh, Oswald Chambers, and my was for his highest Uh, said, don't let this thought enter your head that I'm of no use where I am. He said that because you certainly cannot be used where you are not. God, you can't use me where I am. Well, I can't use you where you aren't. Let's see if God can use us where we are right now. If you're single, celebrate your singleness and say, God, how can you use my singleness to glorify you? If you're married, 
be faithful in your marriage. And do your best to win people to Christ. And if your children or your spouse are not believers, start with them. That's how a believer would live in an unbelieving world. Finally, the fifth thing that Paul would say in this chapter is believers only marry believers. If I'm going to live out my faith, I sure don't want to bring hardship upon myself. Well, you just said, John, that, hey, if the unbeliever was going to stay, they could stay. Well, yeah, but you didn't, that was for people who are already married. You don't go into this trying to get into a position of conflict. A wife is bound to her husband. This is 1 Corinthians 7.39. As long as he lives. If her husband dies, she's free to marry anyone she wishes. But only if he loves the Lord. Please understand, underline, only if he loves the Lord. This is the rule. For more clarification, in another letter that Paul sent to the people of Corinth, in 2 Corinthians 6, he said, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can there can light have with darkness? And what harmony is there between Christ and Belial, which is another name for the devil? And what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? And he says, well, nothing. Again, if both of us, if my wife and I are both seeking the Lord, we're getting closer together. But if I'm seeking the Lord and I'm married to someone who's not, we're going to get farther apart, which is why you always want to pray. But you wouldn't want to set out to do this. So right next to where it says believers only marry believers, please write above that date. Because sometimes a lot of people go, well, I'm not going to marry him, so it's okay as long as we date for six years. Okay, no. You're missing the point. Don't get emotionally involved with people who don't share your spiritual convictions. Because sooner or later, it's going to come down, there are going to be moral choices that come your way. And for an unbeliever, of course, they're not going to accept the authority of the Bible. This book doesn't mean anything to them. But if somebody's a believer, and we say, I want to be guided by this. So believers living in an unbelieving world marry other believers. Now, I hope as we've gone through this, you start going, well, John, wow. I mean, there are threats to our marriages. Oh, yeah, very real. The people in Corinth lived in a real world full of sin, full of opportunities to stray, plenty of selfishness to go around, and the Corinthians all just wanted to know, is there anything to this Christian stuff or is this just another religion that's pushed on us? And Paul said, yeah. And our marriages have to be the platform where this shines out the brightest. So I want us to spend some time praying for marriages in our church. So if you get comfortable, I'm going to spend some time leading us in prayer for marriages for our church. Would you pray with me, please? Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, I come before you and I want to thank you for this time to study your word today. Father, I want marriages to be strong. And so, Father, I'm going to start with single people first. Father, I pray that you would bless the Christian singles in our congregation. Father, that um, you would give them a hunger and a thirst for righteousness, a desire to love you, a desire to study your word, a desire, Lord, for fellowship with other believers that they would date you first. If you are single, would you pray that God would be your first love above all else? If he wants you to marry someone, he would show you who and when and where and why. If you know a Christian single, would you pray for him right now and say, God, would you guide them?
Pray for him or her right now. God, protect them from immorality. Guide them to the right person for them to marry. Now, would you pray also uh, for marriages in our church, that God would protect husbands and wives, that they might honor their vows? Oh, Father, I pray that you will protect us from all the threats to marriages in our church. Father, adultery, pornography, unforgiveness, unwillingness to let go of past sins and flaws and faults. Forgive us, Lord, for our selfishness. Protect our marriages, Lord. Would you pray for husbands and wives in our congregation that the Lord would be their first love and their love for God would overflow and their love for their spouse? If you're married, pray for your marriage right now and say, God, help me love my spouse as I should. Help me think of him or help me think of her more importantly than myself. And finally, would you pray that God would use our marriages and our singleness as platforms for the gospel to shine out to our culture. Oh God, I pray that our spirituality wouldn't just be an afterthought. After we get all our needs met, then oh yeah, we might go to church too. Lord, I pray it would be our primary motivation. God, I want my marriage to honor you. And for those who are single, I want my singleness to honor you. God, I pray that you open our eyes to people we need to minister to, to people who need kindness, to people who need love, to people who just need some respect. You show us how to serve them and meet their needs. We thank you, Lord, that singleness and marriage are both gifts from you. Thank you, Lord, that you promised to give us the desire and the power to do what you want. So give us the desire and the power to fulfill our vows. And help us to embrace where you've put us as a mission field. We pray these things in the wonderful name of Christ our Lord. Amen.